Leftists have canceled the past because people did bad things there, which weren't as good as the good things leftists are doing now because of the values learned from the past, which no longer exists. President and venal houseplant Joe Biden has declared March the end of History Month, which will replace Women's History Month, which is now Men's History Month, and so has become sexist and has been canceled. Speaking to a statue of Thomas Jefferson he mistook for his late Aunt Gladys, the soon-to-be former president said, quote, We must renounce the history that has taught us to be virtuous in order to be as virtuous as the history taught us to be. By expunging all memory of everything that happened before yesterday, we will go into a new tomorrow that won't even be tomorrow because there'll be no yesterday to compare it to. And so it'll just be today forever and think how happy we'll be then. Unquote. Among the evil historical figures who will now be deemed non-existent will be such racist former humans as Abraham Lincoln. The hysterical leader of a white leftist Twitter mob, white leftist Snowy R. White, declared whitely, quote, When I think of how virtuous and anti-racist I am, Lincoln just can't compare. Sure, he freed the slaves and took a bullet to the head for his defense of liberty, but he never accomplished as much as white leftists like myself, who just today tweeted insults at conservatives and pretended to like rap music when, let's face it, we all know it's crap. My hope is that we can cleanse America of its evil history of slavery so that everyone will finally be as sinless as I pretend to be. And think how much money we'll save on reparations, unquote. Professor Beauregard T. Grifter, who heads the School of Critical Race Gibberish in the Department of Nonsense at the university formerly named after slaveholder Eli Yale, but now just represented by a gigantic googly-eyed clown face that may or may not be Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, says the theory behind canceling the past is that it allows useless nebbishes like himself to pretend to be superior to people who actually accomplish things. Professor Grifter said, quote, Equality is a central tenet of Western culture, so we must destroy Western culture in order to achieve the equality we would not even know was a good thing if it weren't for something I no longer remember because the beginning of this sentence was canceled for taking place in the past, unquote. The Democrat Party and other criminal organizations say they hope canceling the past will finally unite everyone in hating everyone else. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. Life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing. Hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped ipsy-topsy. The world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day. Hooray, hooray. It makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hooray. All right, at long, long last, I am back. And uh, now fully vaccinated, so I'm virtually immortal, uh, and I may just do the entire the show for the rest of all time, or not, and we'll just be left with another Clavenless week to get through. But the way to get through it is to subscribe, subscribe to the Andrew Claven YouTube channel. I think we've got six, seven billion uh, listeners, and we're trying to get down to four or five, uh, clear the place out. Uh, so come on and uh, subscribe, ring the little bell. I'll come to your house. I'll deliver new content. And if you leave a comment and it's su- uh, sufficiently irritating and bigoted and just uh, completely unacceptable, we will read it on the air because it'll fit right in with the rest of our show. Uh, this one is from Jack1066, uh, survivor, I guess, of the Norman Conquest. He has his predictions for the Clavenless Week. Saturday, Kermit the Frog announces he will be starring in a film for The Daily Wire. <laughs> Sunday, the moon turns to blood. Monday, Trump is impeached. 
Tuesday, Biden dies of natural causes that look a lot like knife wounds. Wednesday, President Kamala Xi Jinping and the other lizard people reveal themselves. Thursday, Earth is destroyed in an epic showdown between Mexu, Trump, and Kamazilla. Friday, the Earth reforms just in time for the next show. That, that sounds perfectly uh, likely to me. The, the other way you can get through the Clavenless, uh, the Clavenless Week is by uh, writing us in the mailbag. Go to dailywire.com, subscribe, hit the podcast button, hit the Andrew Claven podcast. There's a little mailbag symbol. Hit that. You can ask me about anything you want. Uh, we got great questions today on religion, on your personal lives, on politics. My answers are guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life. You, and you may ask yourself, will they change my life for the better? <laughs> you fool. Uh, but, but go ahead. We want to hear from you and we love doing it. You know, on this show, we advertise some excellent VPNs, but a lot of people use a free VPN. There's a virtual private network that's supposed to give you increased privacy. But some of those free ones, they have been known to harvest data themselves, and they may expose your personal information, which could make you vulnerable to identity theft. You want to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. In an instant, a cybercriminal could take what's yours, your money, your credit, your reputation, and that's why you need LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats like your social security number for sale on the dark web. And if they detect your information has potentially been compromised, they'll send you an alert and you have access. This is a big thing to me. You have access to a dedicated restoration specialist if you become a victim. That is important because once they mess with you, you are messed with and LifeLock can help you put it back together again. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can keep what's yours with LifeLock Identity Theft Protection. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year by going to lifelock.com slash Clavin. That's lifelock.com slash Clavin to save 25% off. But first, you have to journey deep into the dark web to find out how do you spell Clavin. But we'll tell you right here. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. This is also true. So here is something. As this week developed, I was faced with something that I have actually been wrestling with for... I think it's about 15 years. I, I was 49 when I converted to Christianity, when I was baptized a Christian. And I was a theist from about the time I was 45. So I had a lot of time to think things over. I really did reason for 30 years, 30, 35 years, over whether or not one could or should believe in God. And by the time I was baptized, I was fully convinced that logically this was the only uh, possible answer. A lot of people, I think Nietzsche said that faith is not wanting to know about what's true, but I, I found that to be exactly the opposite. My faith was, the faith was the courage to believe in what I knew to be true, but couldn't see and couldn't prove like you prove something that is material. So I became a Christian with a, a great deal of confidence, uh, which I still have, is, is only deepened uh, as, as I've gone deeper into it, is only deep, my faith is only deepened, and that's not a problem. However, like just about everybody in the scientific age, I am a natural materialist. I'm a person who just thinks things happen naturally, right? We no longer go to uh, a healer to get our diseases healed. We go to a doctor. He gives us a vaccine. We know that the vaccine causes antibodies. It's kind of part of the disease. It causes antibodies. The antibodies protect you. Things work materially. In the old days, when there was a lightning storm, this is true. It, they used to uh, climb up in church towers and ring bells to chase away the lightning demons. Uh, and of course, the lightning <laughs> would kill them because they were at the highest place, which was the church steeple. Uh, so it was it didn't really work all that well. 
when Benjamin Franklin invented the lightning rod, they still had churches, but they put lightning rods on them because the superstitions of the past were passing away. And we became, as we became less superstitious, we became more materialistic, leading to the foolish idea, the foolish corollary of that idea that everything is, is material. So that's not true. So I have this natural materialistic streak, like I think everyone does. I am a Christian. I believe in an immaterial God, an omniscient God, an all-powerful, forgiving, loving God. But do I believe, this is the question I started to ask myself, do I believe in all the other supernatural entities that do exist in, in Bible stories, like demons and, more, most importantly, like Satan? And I would just ignore this question. I could happily ignore this question. I, I try not to bother myself with things that are above my pay grade. My, my question is, how do I live in such a way that I come closer to God? That's, my, that's the question I'm always asking myself. But it really does get to me because... Life is, very, life is very much as if there were a Satan. That life is lived very much as if there were a Satan. And I can't help finding that when you have an active prayer life like I have, you come closer to God. And every time you come closer to God, every time you feel more powerfully his love, his forgiveness, uh, his, uh, his grace, you have a reaction. Something starts whispering in your ear saying, you know, you really did some terrible, terrible things in your life. You really are an awful person. And not only are you awful, but that guy down the street is even worse. And if you point at that guy down the street, you will uh, you can draw attention away from your awfulness and you won't even have to worry about the forgiveness of God. So it kind of, it walks like Satan and it quacks like Satan. It quacks like the devil. And I started to think, well, you know, I have started to think at this point, well, there is in fact a conscious entity that tries to do ill to humankind. And when you do not do what the Bible, what, what God wants you to do, you find yourself with that voice whispering in your ear. And the difference between the two things is one leads you to give up your judgments, to give up yourself, and, and it makes you free. And the other tells you that you're going to have power and it puts you in chains. And that's what I'm seeing today, in the, this week, in the news, almost entirely. Almost everything I saw was people being told that they were going to get power by doing a certain thing, and in fact, they ended up in chains. And it, I kept thinking, gee, it kind of walks like the devil, it quacks like the devil, maybe that's what it is. And I started to think, I, this quote came into my mind from Voltaire, who said one of the thinkers behind the French Revolution, leading up to the French Revolution, he said, it's, it's difficult to liberate fools from the chains they revere. And that was the other part of this I saw, that when people find themselves, that they are wrapping themselves in chains, they don't say, oh, I'm going to stop doing that. They say, no, these chains, these are, oh, these are, the, these are the chains. These are the good chains. These are not like other chains, like bad chains. These are the chains. The other day, the New York Times attacked um, that new uh, uh, audible uh, social media site, uh, and they said it has unfettered conversations. Well, fetters are chains. They want your conversations in chains. And it's difficult, said Voltaire, to liberate fools from the chains they revere. So cancel culture is exactly the opposite of grace and forgiveness. Jesus says, if you forgive, you will be forgiven. And we think about that as a heavenly thing, like if I forgive you when I get to heaven, they'll be nice to me. But it's actually an immediate psychological result. If you forgive people, if you let things go, if you uh, don't judge people, if you say, hey, we all have problems, you become freer. You don't judge yourself quite as much. If you can forgive, it, look, if I can forgive a schmuck like you, I can obviously forgive a wonderful person like myself, right? So it, it liberates you. But 
But there's always this voice in your ear telling you that if you pass judgment, you will express virtue. If I say, boy, those guys who do such and such, they are the worst, then everybody's going to think, wow, he must be a really good guy. And in fact, what it does is it wraps you in chains. Cancel culture is a form of fetter. It is a form of chains because the more you cancel other people, the less access you have to other people's opinions, to oppositional opinions, to deepen and make yourself wiser. But you also have given power to the mob to cancel you. And eventually, they'll get to you. They will get to you what you will think. You can't think the things that you might think anymore. You can't change your mind. You can't leave the mob behind because you'll be next. And you know it because you were just part of it. And one of the things, so this week, there was, it was Dr. Seuss. And the, the Dr. Seuss uh, uh, people, the people who are in control of Dr. Seuss's uh, literary inheritance, uh, they t- found six books of his books. And they were not six of his most famous books. It wasn't The Cat in the Hat or anything like that. But there's six of his books where they found what they thought was racist imagery in it. <laughs> and I was looking through some of it. Some of it was like a fish with an Esco- it was an Eskimo fish, and he had an Eskimo, one of those kind of seal suits that Eskimos wear. And I thought, like, yeah, you know, really? <laughs> What's gonna, what is going to happen when we cancel that? When we cancel that book, will Eskimos be free? It's like, ah, finally, I don't have to eat those chocolate pies anymore. They were getting all over my seal skin suits. <laughs> what does it even mean, a fish in an Eskimo quote? But, however, it doesn't matter. What, this is the thing that I think conservatives get wrong. The thing that I think conservatives get wrong is we argue each case. We argue each case. Well, is there, is there something racist about, um, about Dr. Seuss? Is there? But no, you know, no. It, we shouldn't cancel anything. We shouldn't cancel anything in the past. Now, Dr. Seuss happens to be a genius. What he did was a kind of genius. It's a weird genius. When he died, I was a news writer, and someone said to me, could you write an obit in the style of Dr. Seuss? I said, no, that's not my genius. That's not the genius I have. I don't know anybody who can write in the style of Dr. Seuss. They can only kind of vaguely imitate him. He was a one-off. He was an amazing writer. Nothing he wrote should be canceled. Obviously, it should be held in, in place. But all the arts, all the documents of the past should be readily available and all arguments should be readily available. And what should our attitude toward them be? Our attitude should be forgiveness. Judge not, lest we be judged. We should look at them and there are things you see in the past. I mean, a good example is the great movie Gone with the Wind, one of the best movies ever. There are moments in that that you might cringe and think, oh, gee, you know, the the way the slaves are treated uh, is, is condescending and racist and all this. But, but if you are a grown up Christian adult or an adult with Christian values, you look at that and say, okay, that that was then and they can only see what they could see and I can only see what I can see and I can live with the greatness of this art and appreciate the greatness of this movie without passing judgment on them, right? But there's always this voice whispering in your ear saying, oh yeah, but if I pass judgment on them, then look how good I am. And as the chains close in, as you're cut off from the works of art, because what do works of art do, right? They preserve the human experience as it's experienced in the time that the work of art is made. So reading a work of art, watching a movie, any kind of any kind of art is like experiencing, if it's great art, it's like experiencing talking to somebody in the past who is sharing his or her wisdom with you now. That's an amazing gift. When you allow judgment, condemnation to take that gift away from you, the chains are on you. 
Mozart, Mozart's not bothered. Mozart is somewhere else. Mozart is having a fine old time. He's not bothered. It's you who are losing things. And this is the thing that really gets me because I go online and I see especially young people. I mean, it's the mob. The mob that, that gets them ginned up is probably not young people. But it's a lot of these young people who are, uh, you know, marinated, basically soaked in this um, anti-forgiving philosophy who basically say, like, I'll go on and I'll say, you're just depriving yourselves. No, 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 I'm not racist, racist. I'm not depriving myself. You're the racist, you're the racist. And then we have, then we, ha I mean, I think to myself, well, quacks like the devil, you know, <laughs> quacks like the devil, you know, and, and they revere their chains because their chains are their virtue. They revere their chains, their chains are their virtue, and the lack of forgiveness is putting them in chains. It's not them, it's not really hurting the people who are being canceled. The people who are being canceled can be hurt in the moment, but it's really putting the society in chains and the mob in chains. The people who are doing the canceling are also the ones who are wrapped in chains, chains they're being taught to revere. So then you have, you know, you have the, these guys who work for corporations who are all on board with this unforgiving, graceless, unchristian, anti-Christian philosophy. No, don't not judge. Judge. Judge and you shall be powerful. Judge and you shall be deemed virtuous. Judge and it won't be you in chains. You'll put those bad guys in chains. Teaching you to be ignorant. Teaching you not to be able to hear anybody who disagrees. So Stephen Colbert, this guy's a comedian, right? But he's not a comedian anymore. He's been co-opted by corporations, the corporate idea. The he's been become the corporate voice that is there to gin up the mob on behalf of the corporation. You're not working. Remember, there's only free speech and speech controlled by the powerful. When you control other people's speech, you are giving more power to the powerful. That's what you're doing. And Stephen Colbert is right on board. This is the knucklehead, Stephen Colbert, who said that socialism was just like trick-or-treating. People don't have candy, and they come to you and ask for candy, and you give them candy, and that's socialism. This is what this corporate buffoon said, right? That was almost right. It's just like trick-or-treating, except with guns. They come to your house and say, give us your candy, because the trick, if you don't give them the treat, is a, a bullet in the back of the head in, in the Lubyanka prison. So this is the same Stephen Colbert speaking about canceling, get this now, Dr. Seuss. It's a responsible move on their part. There hadn't been an earth-shattering outcry, but they recognize the impact that these images might have on readers, especially kids, and they're trying to fix it because Dr. Seuss books should be fun for all people. Black, white, straight, gay, sneeches, both star-bellied and plain, Loraxes, barbaloots, all the Who's down in Whoville, and the strange, angry creature named Fufu the Snoo. Oh, he's so cute as he tells you to give up your rights. He's so cute as he tells you that one of the geniuses of American pop culture should vanish from the stage, should just disappear. You should not be able to get this. You should not be able to get it. See, I don't think you should actually be able to put a book out of print. I don't think you should be able to will a book out of print. I think a book should then be, be surrendered over to the public domain if you let it go out of print. When my books have gone out of print, I get to write a letter to the publisher and say, you have to return that book to me because you have let it go out of print right? You can't just put a book out of print. It becomes part of the public domain. Now, a real comedian, Bill Burr. Now, I really like Bill Burr, and he probably doesn't share my politics at all. I don't know really what his politics are, but he probably doesn't share my politics at all. But Bill Burr is, does what comedians do. He pushes the line. He doesn't push the corporate line. He pushes the line. And here is his reaction to cancel culture in the form of Gina Carano being fired for nothing, being fired for nothing, but really for acting while conservative by the Disney Corporation, 
wholly owned and operated by the Chinese government. Here's what Bill Burr said about this. Cut four. No, she was an absolute sweetheart. Yeah. Super, super nice person and, you know, whatever. Now it's becoming like, hey, you made an ignorant comparison. There goes your yeah, dream, yeah. right? Right. I'm like, I'm, you know, I look at that. It's like, who the f stands up to that? That, that. And I, Bill Burr, I'm sure is, I, Bill Burr, I know is from what he said is an atheist, but that's the Christian idea. He was formed by a Christian culture. Who stands up to that? No one. No one stands up to that. So you judge not, lest you be judged or judge, and you will be judged. You will be put in chains. And you'll revere your chains. You'll revere, no, I'm a good person. Oh, the children. Remember Stephen Colbert? Oh, the children have to read Dr. Seuss. And they might see a fish in an Eskimo suit. And what will happen then? There was, this week, somebody said, uh, children, babies have to be taught about racism because we're so convinced that we can be our own judges, that we can fix our own virtue. What Burr said is the, crux of the of the matter if we all we have to do to not have any cancellations to have no cancellations zero cancellations all we have to do is forgive our friends in the past is forgive the people of the past and say you know you did your brilliant thing there is no other person like mozart you did your genius work in a time when you thought different things than i think now Somebody's going to say that to me one day, and especially these people who support abortion. It's not that the time is not far off. The time is not far off when their statues will come down, when people will say these were savages who murdered babies in the womb. The time is not far off. If you don't want that uh, blame, then don't put cast blame on the people of the past. Somebody sent me, I was commenting on this on Twitter, and somebody sent a, a just remarkable moment between Mike Tyson, the famous boxer, and a Giants, uh, New York Giants running back named Saquon Barkley. And this really struck me, and I'll, I'll end with this about this, but it really struck me because Tyson was an animal. I mean, Tyson was a guy who would just rip you to pieces in the ring. Uh, he had problems in his personal life, but apparently he found God. And the moderator of this is sports talk, you know, the moderator said to Tyson, you really let things go now. You, when people offend you, you don't look for revenge. And Saquon Barkley said, oh, no, 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 you got to look for revenge. I look for revenge. And here's what Tyson told him. This is cut six. It's easier said than done to not take things personally, but it's heavy once you embrace it. Oh, yeah, it's laugh. It's a joke, baby. It's a joke. It's one of the things that I've one of the many things I've learned from Mike is how, you know, there have been people in his past that have taken mm -hmm. advantage of him. And he doesn't hold a grudge, lives mm -hmm. in forgiveness. Ooh. I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not really Oh, like, yeah, listen. Yeah, I'm not it's, like... You're not ready, brother. I'm you, not like... When you, you, you do me wrong... No. You cross the line, like, I cut ties, like... The devil wins. Quick. The devil wins. So you're saying the devil wins because someone did me wrong, and I cut ties with that person. I act like I never met that person. Yeah, because... So I got to be the bigger person. Because he changed you. Oh, okay. So he's your master because he controls your emotions. He's not your enemy. He's your master. Because you're not who you used to be now. He stole that away from you. Mm. Well, you allowed him to. He can't do it if you don't allow him to. That's hard, though, man. That's Once you learn, you think you're great now. Watch how great you're going to be when you learn compassion and empathy. <laughs> That's an amazing, an amazing piece of tape. That, that is, that's Christianity in a nutshell as a philosophy. I mean, forget about the theology of it, but that's it in a nutshell. 
What he said was, if you let someone make you hate them, if you let someone make you judge them, if you let someone make you angry at them, they own you. They're your master. They're not your enemy anymore. They're your master because they changed you in a way that makes you smaller, really. And he says to, he says to him, you think you're great now. Look how great you'll be once you let things go. We have an entire nation at this moment being taught being taught and, and excited and moved and, and uh, convinced to pass judgment on the past that, and that that will give them power. But what Tyson is saying is exactly right. It gives power to the people you're passing judgment on. It gives power to the people who make you hate. And if it quacks like the devil, it may be the devil. This is a bad philosophy. And what conservatives should be doing is not talking about Dr. Seuss. It's not talking about who else did they, they took uh, Mallard Fillmore, the conservative comic. They took that out of Gannett's papers, which is USA Today. Those are big papers. That's, that is probably one of the biggest chains in the country. They took that out. They're going through movies and looking what needs a warning sign on it and all this stuff. Our attitude should be no, 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 no. You don't have to do any of that. You don't have to do any of that. All you got to do is forgive what's wrong and understand that somebody's going to have to forgive you. And then you're free. And then you're free. Otherwise, otherwise, the things you hate are your master. So there is an awful lot of business going on at my house right now, and that is why I am glad to have a Ring doorbell and Ring video cams that can help me check on the perimeter of my house no matter where I am, whether I'm staying in the house or out of the house. I can see what's going on. Anyone comes to the door, I can talk to them on my phone. You can do all that if you get Ring security systems. You can see and speak to whoever is at your door from anywhere. You can keep an eye on every corner of your house, and you can protect your whole home with Ring Alarm, a powerful, affordable, whole home security system you can easily install yourself. Right now, get a special offer on the Ring Welcome Kit at ring.com slash Clavin. It comes with Ring's Video Doorbell 3 and Chime Pro, the perfect way to upgrade your front door and start your Ring experience. So go to ring.com slash Clavin. That is ring.com slash Clavin. From now on, no matter where you are, no matter who comes to your door, you will be able to see and talk to them and say to them, how do you spell Clavin? And if they get it right, tackle them. Call the police. It's K-L-A. <laughs> Those who would give up safety for liberty deserve neither vaccines nor happiness. Benjamin Franklin, 1755. <laughs> <laughs> even, even I don't understand that, but I'm sure it meant something. We're talking about the fact that people come to revere their chains. Voltaire's remark that it is difficult to free fools from the chains they revere. And what happens is you wrap your, you put those chains on yourself, you know, like, like uh, Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol. I wear the chains I forged in life. You put them on yourself. And in order to break those chains, you have to let go of the behaviors that put them on you in the first place. But if you let go of those behaviors, that means looking in the mirror, means facing your shame, it means facing your mistake, it means begging God for forgiveness, and people do not want to do that. So they start to revere the chains. They start to say, no, the chains are the good, these are good, these are the good chains. I thought about this again, not just with cancel culture, but watching the announcement uh, in Texas that they were taking, they were opening up. All businesses open, mask mandate is gone. This is Greg Abbott, governor of Texas. And, and this, by the way, I mean, in, I think it's South Dakota, Christy Nome, they never had a lockdown. They never had a mask mandate. There are plenty of states that are opening, but this is Texas. It's a big state, and they're just taking all the stops off. Uh, and so this is cut 24, Greg Abbott making that announcement. 
I'm issuing a new executive order that rescinds most of the earlier executive orders. Effective next Wednesday, all businesses of any type are allowed to open 100%. That includes any type of entity in Texas. Also, I am ending the statewide mask mandate. Personal vigilance to follow the safe standards is still needed to contain COVID. It's just that now state mandates are no longer needed. <laughs> so, so let's get it clear what the guy just said, right? State mandates are not needed. Use your, use your head, use your common sense. And of course, this includes businesses, right? If you have a business and it's a business where people come in and talk to, to each other and they're close in close quarters, you're still going to put up a sign that says, you know, please wear a mask when you're in our store because it's, it's healthier and people are still going to do that. But the mandate will be gone. So for instance, walking around, walking around outdoors with a mask really does nothing for you. You don't have to wear a mask. There's no reason to. I go hiking. I never wear a mask. I see people wearing masks out in the middle of no, we're out in the middle of nowhere. We're well over six feet apart. Now I've been vaccinated. So I, you come close to me, you be, are healed. Your people are actually healed when they come close to me at this point. I just radiate health at, at now. Uh, but, but I still see people wearing masks for, for no reason, right? So he's taken all that away. So I go on Twitter and somebody, so help me, has tweeted a picture of a mask and the phrase, come and take it. You know, Molin Lobby, that people talk about their weapons. If you want my gun, come and take it. Come and take, you come. He wasn't joking either. Come and take my, you can't take my mask. Nobody's taking your mask. You can wear a mask anytime you want. You can wear a Frankenstein mask if you want. You can wear, like, you can wear the mask of your favorite superhero for all I care. But the state is no longer telling you. But it's the chains they revere. The reactions to this, the reactions to this were so telling because it was uh, Bill Crystal and David French, who have now entered a kind of perfect realm where everything they say is untrue. They've entered this wonderful realm where like now, even if they, the words and and but are, aren't true, you know, <laughs> they've reached that. It's almost perfection. They put commas in their sentences. You go like, uh, no, that comma, that's not right. So they started saying, well, you know, wearing a mask is an act of loving your neighbor. And this just shows you that Texas would reopen and take away the mandate, the mandate to love your neighbor, the Texas governor's mandate, not Oh, you know, you to say, oh, you should still wear a mask because it's the nice thing to do. That would be an opinion. That's an opinion. But to say that Texas is not exercising love of neighbor because it's taken away the chains. It's the chains they revere. And by the way, by the way, the, the shutdowns themselves have been tremendously harmful. And, and David French did acknowledge that. But to never let a child see somebody smile. You know, to never let me see somebody smile, to never let a, a beautiful woman walk down the street and show people her face. I mean, this is a genuine, genuine crippling of human society and for no reason. I want you to hear some of the some of the reactions. Here is our old friend Beto O'Rourke uh, reacting to this as cut 15. They literally want to sacrifice the lives of our fellow Texans for, I don't know, for, for political gain, to satisfy certain powerful interests within the state. And, and this isn't hyperbole. It's hard to escape the conclusion that it's also a, a cult of, of death. Um, you have extraordinarily anti-democratic elements. I mean, look at the insurrection on, on January 6th for, for any proof. You have anti-government 
elements literally running the government of, of the state of Texas. And, and it almost, I use the phrase failed state, because I, I think when you can't guarantee the electricity, the heat, the running water, the, the public welfare and safety, you are about there by any classic definition. It's that that is just it's a death cult. It's a death cult because they're no longer forcing you to wear a mask in every situation. And again, businesses are probably going to say, hey, in this business, this is a close quarter business, whatever it is. It's a little store. Please wear a mask. This is a hair salon. Please wear. They're probably going to do that. But they're going to make people are going to make their own decisions. People are going to make their own decisions. That's a death cult that. I mean, really, if you follow the logic of what he's saying, it's a death cult to let people make their own decisions. Freedom, he is saying, is a death cult. And I think that's exactly what he believes. I actually think that that is a statement of his belief. If you are not passing judgment, if you are not being told what to do, if you are not forced to be virtuous, you are in a death cult because it's the chains they revere. Michael Moore, who always looks to me like the least healthy person in the country, right? I mean, he's this pasty-faced fat guy who looks like he's going to fall over any minute. He is going to lecture us about this. He sent out this tweet about Texas. Remember, this is Mr. Flint. This is Mr. Flint, Michigan. This is not a guy who lives in Texas. He says, Texas, we hear you. You didn't want to be part of our electrical grid, and now you've removed your mask mandate and are allowing large crowds to gather. We hear you. COVID is a hoax, so you don't need our precious vaccine. We'll send it to people who are saving lives by wearing masks. Texas got hit by a once-in-a-century storm, and it was, in fact, their renewable energy that froze up. Uh, and that's why they lost it. It wasn't because they weren't part of the grid. But he's saying, let's not give them vaccine. If they're not going to force people to do stuff, let's not give them vaccine. If they are not going to wear those virtuous chains, if they're not going to, it's the chains we revere. It's the chains we revere. It's not Because listen, here, here is the thing. States like Florida that lifted their lockdowns quickly and eased other restrictions early have far better COVID-19 records than states of similar size like New York that stayed locked down longer and were slow to ease other restrictions. Florida COVID-19 death rate of 144 per 100,000 residents is lower than New York's 243 per 100,000 residents. Likewise, Georgia has a larger population than New Jersey, yet its COVID-19 death rate of 159 per 100,000 residents is lower than New Jersey's 262 per 100,000 residents. This pattern repeats itself across the nation. Long lockdowns kill people. I mean, that is the thing. You know, the lockdowns themselves have been deadly. The lockdowns themselves have been brutally cruel to children. I mean, that millions, literally millions of children uh, have vanished from the educational system. And you know it's not rich children. You know it's not well-to-do elite children. They're not vanishing from any educational system. You know it's the poor who are being left behind. So you've destroyed these lives. You've destroyed these lives. And now you're going to parade your virtue back and forth, having left this trail of blood and tears. You're going to parade your virtue back and forth because people aren't being forced to wear a mask because it's the chains they revere. And you know what? If it quacks like the devil, that may be who you're talking to. Thousands of migrants. We now have a massive crisis at the border. And I love, I just, I mean, just as a, a fan of absurdity, as a man who is, makes, is 
made to laugh by human absurdity. I love the administration saying, well, it's not a crisis. It's an event. It's not a crisis. It's a, an incident. We don't have a crisis. Without, I mean, this is something like 20 times the number of people who are pouring over the border than during the Trump administration. But it's not a crisis. Yeah, we're putting kids in boxes with bars, but they're not cages. They're not cages. They're boxes. They're facilities. They're facilities in an event. They're not cages in a crisis. They're facilities in an incident. They're in box-like structures in a thing that's happening, but they're not cages in a crisis. Hundreds of these people are now known to be carrying the Chinese flu, but they're not being tested. They're not being tested by the feds. Here is Jen Psaki, the spokeswoman for the White House, telling us how they're getting, making sure that the people they are now allowing into the country in droves, in droves, mobs of people pouring into the country. But it's not a crisis. It's not a crisis. It's just a, it's just a thing. It's a happening thing that is going on. This is how they're being, uh, we're making sure that they're not bringing the Chinese flu into the country. Cut 34. When migrants are placed in alternatives to detention, uh, their COVID-19 testing, uh, our policy is for COVID-19 testing to be done at the state and local level and with the help of NGOs and local governments. Uh, and that certainly is something that our policy is, is for ha to have that be done, uh, uh, concluded, before they are even moved to go stay with family members or uh, others they may know uh, while their cases are being adjudicated. Um, and of course, our guidance to anyone, uh, regardless of status, is testing positive for COVID-19 or experiencing COVID-like symptoms is, uh, you know, to social distance, to wear a mask and seek medical attention as needed. But, uh, you know, in general, uh, our approach and our policy is to uh, work with local governments, work with NGOs to ensure to have testing to ensure these migrants are tested uh, and that can take place. And that steps for isolation, quarantining and medical care can be taken should that be needed. So nothing. They're doing nothing. In other words, they're letting illegal people into the country. As they get on the bus, they shout after them and maybe get a test. Would you get a test for the, <laughs> the state and local level? You know, where are these people going to show up at the state and local level? That's not going to happen. They're not going to do that. They're disappearing into the country. So they don't care about the safety. The safety is not a big deal to this government. It really is not because they're letting these people flood the country untested, unexamined. We don't know where they're going. And it's like, yeah, the state at local, our policy is at the state and local level. Our policy is in the town of Poughkeepsie. They should test the illegal aliens that we let into the country in the, uh, at the Texas border. They don't, you know, it has nothing to do with this. Children vanishing from the educational system, people dying in droves in the lockdown states, illegal aliens coming in, carrying the disease. But you have to be forced to wear a mask because it's the chains they revere. This is an excellent time to have an excellent credit score. It's always an excellent time, but it's even more important now when people might be trying to cancel you. You want to be able to say that you are a secure investment. You want to be able to get loans. You want to be able to do the stuff you need to do for your home, for your business. Most of us think above a 700 is a good credit score and below is bad, but that's not necessarily the case. It is National Credit Awareness Month. You probably didn't know that. And ScoreMaster, the new science in credit scores, is inviting listeners, regardless of your credit score, to experience how quickly and easily you can add the points you need to your credit score. How many points? The user of ScoreMaster adds 61 points. This is the average user of ScoreMaster. 
adds 61 points to their score in 20 days or less. And many do it in just a few days. Imagine what 61 points added to your credit score can do. You could save a fortune when buying a car, financing a home or apartment, or buying anything on credit. ScoreMaster puts you in control of your credit and finances. It's National Credit Awareness Month, so be aware of ScoreMaster. You can sign up in one minute and see how many plus points you can add. With ScoreMaster, you control your credit score. Visit scoremaster.com slash Claven, scoremaster.com slash Claven. That's scoremaster.com slash Claven. See if you can add Claven to your score. Uh, it's K, just in case you need to know, it's K-L-A-V-A-N. The other thing I noticed this week is that all bad ideas become the same idea. I really think, I really think there's a truth to that. There are a lot of good ideas in life. There's, you know, art and medicine and science and engineering and constructing motherhood is a good idea. You know, love is a good, all these good ideas, but there's really in the end only one bad idea, which is the idea that you are, can be, that you can earn your own virtue, that you can become a virtuous person. And ultimately it means that everybody is doing the same thing. You always end up hating the other guy because the only way to have any virtues, because none of us has any virtue. We don't have any virtue whatsoever. The only way to construct virtue is to blame other people. So we all wind up pointing the finger at other people. And it doesn't matter which side you're on. There was a comedian. uh, There is a comedian, Ryan Long. I think he's a a Canadian, uh, but he's still funny. And he did a, a while back a thing of a woke guy and a racist discovering that they were really best buddies because they really believed in all the same things. Here's a clip of that. When me and Brad first met, I didn't think we'd get along, but it turns out we kind of agree on everything. Your, Your racial, racial identity, identity is the, the most, most important thing. thing. Everything, everything should be looked at through the lens of race. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Damn. We both have a lot of opinions about people of color, even though we barely know any. I say colored people, but as long as we're classifying them, we both think minorities are a united group who think the same and act the same. And vote the same. You don't want to lose your black card. Sorry, I don't know. I just think we should roll back discrimination laws so we can hire based on race again. Jinx, now you owe me a Coke. Hey, tell them what you told me yesterday. White actors should only do voices for white cartoon characters. Been saying that for years. Stick to your own. Us white people, we have so much privilege. I agree. It is a privilege to be white. Ask him about interracial dating. All I said is that black men who date white women have internalized racism, and white men that date ethnic women are fetishizing them. Guys against interracial dating now. Like, am I being pranked? Did Boomer put you up to this? Ugh, you know that taco place is white-owned? White people should be making white foods, like Kraft macaroni and cheese, no seasoning, not even salt. It's like he's a mind reader. I mean, I've been pushing for segregation forever, and my man does what? I created an improv comedy show exclusively for ethnic people. Guy segregates comedy on my birthday. (laughs) It's a good routine, but it's only funny because it is absolutely true. The woke people have become the biggest racists in America. They are the biggest racists in America. There was a a, a report, uh, I believe it was out of Arizona. Uh, yeah, the Arizona Department of Education. Uh, this is from Chris Rufo, who was on the show a while back. The Arizona Department of Education has created an equity toolkit, which claims that babies show the first signs of racism at three months old and that white children remain strongly biased in favor of whiteness by age five. Now, that's not quite true, by the way. I just happen to know, I happen to have read uh, some of these studies, uh, mostly out of Yale, I think. And they, what they say is that babies attach to the people who take care of them. And the kinds of people to, who take care of them are the kinds of people that they will have the most comfort with with later on. So if a white baby is taken care of a black by a black lady, then that's going to be one of the people that he's uh, comfortable with. And it's just a question and you can't be taken care of it by everybody. So it's just a question of who takes care of you. So it doesn't matter. But they, this is their uh, this is what they say. You have to talk to your baby as young as three months old about race. And here's their, what they say. Silence about race 
reinforces racism by letting children draw their own conclusions based on what they see. Now, what could be worse than letting people draw their own conclusions? Maybe letting them decide whether they can wear a mask. So I wanted to test, you know, it seems to me they're incredibly racist. And I started to look around at what these guys are saying, what the woke people and the racists are saying. And I was looking at Nick Fuentes. Now, I hate picking on Nick, actually, because he strikes me as kind of an unhappy guy, an inwardly uh, unhappy guy. And he always gets uh, angry. He always sets his people on me on Twitter when I uh, attack him. But I do attack him. And and they always say, why won't you debate him? And the reason I won't debate him is because I don't respect his ideas. I don't don't really debate anybody. I discuss things with people. I don't like conversation as a sport. I like conversation as a way of exploring ideas. His ideas don't actually rank his ideas. When you go on, and and he has done this, I'm not making it up, when you go on and say that Jim Crow segregation was better for black people and it was better for white, it was better for all of us, Uh, when you go on and make fun of the Holocaust where men, women, and children were slaughtered in their millions uh, for the, the, the their their last name, basically, because people didn't like their last name. When you make fun of, of that and then you attach that to Christianity, that's not an idea to me. There is, there is no path. There is no path from the cross to racism. You cannot get there from here. It can't be done. Okay, so when you do that, I, I dismiss that. I don't really have anything to say about that except that, no, we're all created in the image of God. Racism is an offense against the image of God. You can't get to that place. But he made a speech, and I think it was just this week. You know, they had CPAC, and he was at America First PAC, AF PAC. And he made this, this speech, which I just found actually fascinating. So if America ceases to be this people, if America ceases to retain that English cultural framework and the influence of European civilization, if it loses its white demographic core, and if it loses its faith in Jesus Christ, then this is not America anymore. So what's fascinating to me about that is there's a lot of truth mixed in with the falsehood. This is a British slash European culture. We did get most of our ideas about freedom from the British. They come almost directly from the British. So thank you, Britain, for giving us this idea. It doesn't matter who comes up with the good ideas, right? It doesn't matter if the British were the people who discovered fire. What are you going to do? Say, well, that's British fire. I'm going to live in the dark. I'm going to eat my food raw. I'm not going to touch that British fire. No, the British came up with great ideas and the Europeans uh, also came up with great ideas and that fed into the American founding. And yes, we are a a British-based, European-based culture, Christian culture as well. Europe used to be Christendom. We are, all our ideas are informed by Christianity. They would not have been what they were if we hadn't, if they hadn't grown out of Christianity. And it is a perfectly fair question to ask. If we lose our faith in Christianity, will we lose those values? I was discussing that with Douglas Murray on the show, right? He has lost his faith in Christianity, but he believes in the Christian values and he believes there may be some way to keep those values afloat without the rock they stand on. I think he's wrong, but he's, he, as he says, it's a very complex question and something that could be asked. So as far as Fuentes is saying, if we lose our British-based values, which are the values that inform the Declaration and the Constitution, yeah, that would be uh, terrible. We would no longer be America. If we lose our faith in Jesus Christ, it is possible we would lose those values. And into that, he slips in. And if we lose our white core, that's like if we lose our sneakers. I mean, do we? there are so many things that go into a culture, weather, luck, a million different things, history, all the things that go, these complex, uncountable uh, un, things beyond our comprehension, things we can't, it's like trying to predict the climate in the future. You just really can't do it. You can only pretend to do it. 
I think the amount of melanin in people's skins is probably one of the less important things that went on. But he's telling you that, yeah, if we lose these influences and if we lose the white people, he's mixing it all together because he's a racist. He believes that this is an important thing when there really is no evidence, as far as I can see, that actually your race is very important to what you accomplish in this world. So then I went to this guy, Tim Wise, who's one of these, a white guy, of course, who goes around uh, talking about how racist America is. So he's on the left. This is, uh, this is the wokest woke guy of all. This is his, this is what he does. And here's his speech. If I had to explain to you in one phrase the history of this country with regard to race and with regard to class, this would be the phrase. The whole history of America is the history of rich white men telling not rich white people that their problems are caused by brown and black people. That is the whole history of America. All the rest, as they say, is commentary, right? It's all footnote from there. It's all footnotes, all men are created equal. That's just a footnote to the abuse because there was never any abuse of the power of the weak by the powerful before America. That never happened, that never happened before. So all the stuff that happened that changed that that trained people, taught people, guided people away from abusing the weak, from, the, from saying that the weak were born to be weak, that the small were born to be small. All those ideas that changed the world, that didn't exist on the planet, or at least were in gestation on the planet until America gave them a home and a being. All that, just, it's just footnote because the only thing that matters is the color of people's skin. Tim Wise and Nick Fuentes are the same guy. And the reason is the Bad idea is all one, all bad ideas are one bad idea. There's a great idea, which is let it go. Love your neighbor. Don't judge. Judge lest you be judged. If you let go of that idea, you are stuck with that one bad idea that somehow you are the master of your life, that somehow you are going to create your own virtue. And then it turns out that the only way you can create your own virtue is by pointing at the sins of others. And then it turns out when you point at the sins of others, you have wrapped yourself in chains and your chains are your virtue. It's all bad ideas are one bad idea. I always love to do the Raycon ads because I get to say, Raycon, I listen to audiobooks so much that I've always got these things plugged into my head, my Raycon earbuds. And when you turn them on, they go Raycon. So that's just become running in my head. You talk about an earworm. These are injected directly into your ear. However, it is worth it because whether you're catching up on your favorite news podcast, binging an audiobook as I am, a pair of Raycons in your ears can make all the difference. There are no dangling wires or stems to get in your way here. Raycons come in a range of stylish colors, but always with a comfortable in-ear fit for a more discreet look. Raycons are built to perform anywhere and anytime with water and sweat-resistant construction and Bluetooth that pairs quickly and seamlessly and with enough battery life for six hours of playtime so you can unplug for a while. The best part, Raycon makes great sound accessible to everyone with wireless earbuds starting at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycon's offering 15% off all their products for my listeners. And here's what you got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com slash Clavin. That's B-U-Y-Raycon.com slash Clavin. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. Feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash Clavin. 
B-U-Y, Raycon.com slash Clavin. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you spell buy. It's three letters. Anyone can spell buy. When you get to the Clavin level, then you're really, it's, it's spelling. Now you're a spelling pro. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Duh. So the one reaction to cancel culture that I have really liked was Turner Classic Movies because they're doing a series of problematical films that they're going to discuss. And what they said was, we're not going to cancel the film. We're not going to censor the film. But, but we're just going to discuss them. We're going to talk about things that might people might find problematical. And what I liked about this is it was a, a question, an, an instance of capitalism triumphing overall. If people are going to go around being censors, if they're going to cause race panic, if they're going to cause this virtue signaling, uh, if they're going to be kind. I mean, we're going through a period in this country that is very much like the McCarthy era. That's very much like the witch hunts. This is something that happens in this country from time to time when people go into these moral panics and start pointing figures fingers at one another. And what I like about Turner Classics movies, classic movies, if they said, oh, if it's witch hunt time again, if it's McCarthy time again, if it's woke time, uh, we'll make money off it. We'll, we'll use it to bring in viewers. So I like that. And I noticed on their list was a Psycho, a movie that I'm really fascinated by. And of course, it is an, a really interesting movie when considering transgenderism. And it is the start, it came out in 1960. And it is the start of a trend among horror movies in which the, a woman's body, the natural things that happen to a woman's body, is part of the horror. And I think it is the beginning of this trend. Uh, I talk about this a lot, about the feminine, the war on the feminine. The feminine is a counterweight to male techno, uh, whatever you want to call it, to male, to male techno-materialism. That's what I'll call it, male techno-materialism. Men like stuff. Women like people. That has been studied and proved again and again. Men relate through stuff. Women relate directly. Women connect with people. Men connect with things. And things are what make you money. And things are what build buildings. And things are what build cities. And connecting with people just gets in the way. When you have to care about people, you have to build safer cars. When you have to build to care about people, you have to do stuff for the environment. Women femininity gets in the way of male techno materialism. And so I believe that there is a war on femininity. A lot of people say there's a war on men because they want men to be less masculine. But no, I don't think that's true. I think what they want is for women to be more masculine and because they can't be as masculine as men, being women, they want men to be less masculine so women can catch up. That's what they're trying to do, get rid of femininity because it is a counterweight to male techno-materialism. And as we became more technological, which really does, the, the turning point is in the 60s, women's bodies become problem. And there's this murder that took place in the 50s uh, in Wisconsin. Ed Gein was his name. And we talked a while back about the murder um, that, that came out of, that was connected to uh, Dostoevsky's uh, crime and punishment. And this is another murder that inspired a lot of cultural material. Ed Gein uh, killed a couple of people. I think he killed two women. He confessed to killing two women. Uh, and he, he dug up a lot of female bodies and he took the women, the skin of the women's bodies and tried to make a female suit that he could wear so he would feel closer to his dead mother. He missed his dead mother. And of course, that is the inspiration for Psycho, which began, I think, as a novel by Robert Block and then was made into a classic Alfred Hitchcock story about Norman Bates, who is, and this is a spoiler, so if you've never seen Psycho or never heard the ending of Psycho, you don't want to hear this, uh, that, that uh, he plays Norman Bates, who 
is a psycho killer and he commits his murders dressing up as his mother. And here's a famous scene. It's one of the great diversions where Bates is in the famous psycho house arguing with his mother and we don't know it is the same person. While Marion Crane, played by uh, Janet Leigh, is listening to this, he's, lis- he's listening to what he- she thinks is a man arguing with his overbearing mother. So she's telling him, you know, the, the evil sex is going to, women are evil and they're sexual. And so his, his connection with his mother is a connection against his own masculinity, right? He's, the mother is basically now inside him, deriding him and belittling him for his, um, for his masculinity. Now, if you're a paranoid right-winger crazy person, you may think to yourself, one of these days they're just going to make us all stay in our house and wear masks and we may not be able to get anything to eat. That will never happen. But in case it does, you want to get ReadyWise. They are the leader in emergency food supplies. They can supply you with emergency meals, freeze-dried fruits and vegetables for convenient on-the-go nutrition, and new adventure meals for hiking, camping, and other outdoor activities. ReadyWise makes being prepared simple and affordable. Order online and have nutritious meals shipped directly to your doorstep. And ReadyWise products are proudly made in the USA. ReadyWise makes being prepared simple and affordable. They use the finest ingredients and the latest food preparation technology to ensure optimal taste and freshness. And each recipe is crafted by a team of chefs to provide delicious nutritional meals. This week, my listeners can get 10% off at ReadyWise.com when entering Clavin at checkout or by calling 8 8- Five five four seven four four zero eight four. ReadyWise has a thirty day no questions asked return policy, so there's no risk in taking the initiative to get you and your family prepared today. That's ReadyWise. R e a d y w i s e dot com. Promo code Claven to get ten percent off. Who writes this copy? Spelling ReadyWise. Ready. It's ready and wise. But Claven, who, who even knows? It's K L A V A N. There are no e's in Claven. I just make it look this incredibly easy. What's interesting to me about this is Ed Gein also inspired uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original one of which, which I think is 1974, is one of the ter- is a terrific horror movie. The remake was not that good, but the original is a really terrific horror movie. Uh, and also, of course, inspired Silence of the Lambs, which is also about Buffalo Bill. Remember, the secondary killer in that is collecting women in order to make himself a female suit because he's transgender and he wants to. He has completely identified. Uh, his gender, um, the, the feelings inside him with the body outline of a woman. And you remember in the book, I don't think this is in the movie, but in the book, the last thing he says uh, to Clarice Starling is, how does it feel to be so beautiful? I think that, I think that's the, the line. But the thing is, he, he wants to be a woman. He wants to put this together. And it's interesting to me. It is interesting to me that between Psycho and, um, and Silence of the Lambs, there are a number of movies 
in which a woman's body is the source of the horror. You have Carrie, which is about a girl who gets her period, and when she gets her period, she acquires these amazing powers, uh, which is, a, of course, a symbol for the power of, the, of womanhood and the power of, of being a, a fully sexualized young girl. And Carrie acquires these telekinetic powers when she has her period. The Exorcist, I believe, is also about a girl getting her period, portrayed as being possessed by a demon. And we can all figure out the symbolism of that as well. Uh, but if you listen to what happens to Carrie when she talks to her mother, it's almost the same conversation that Norman Bates has with his pretend mother. This is a cut from uh, Carrie. The old woman. Why didn't you tell me, Mom? <laughs> and God made Eve from the rib of Adam. And it was weak and loosed the raven on the world. And the raven was called sin. Say it. The raven Why was didn't called you sin. Tell me, Mama? Say it. No. The raven was called sin. Ooh, woman. And the raven was called sin. And first sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. I didn't see him, Mama. No. Say it. I didn't see him, Mama. So it's really the same. It's almost the same scene. And of course, uh, I understand that Stephen King's mother was a little bit uh, like that herself. Uh, and so there's a lot of this. Rosemary's baby, having a baby is a source of horror. The omen is also your baby is replaced by the devil. Uh, Alien is a story about women's bodies, right? It is a story of men being turned into women by these creatures that implant uh, babies, their babies in men, and the man explodes because he hasn't got the physical capability of delivering a baby. Uh, and it, it takes a woman um, Ridley to become the man. She has to become a man because the men are being turned into women. She has to take the man's role of fighting the monster. And so this confusion has entered the culture. Uh, and, and one of the things that I find interesting is not only is there this fear, I think, of a woman's body being expressed, and a fear of the, of the natural changes that go through a woman's body, but there's also an understanding, an understanding that women and what happens to them when you have sex with them and women and their feelings and women of their experience of life is a force against the technology, the techno technicization, the technical materialization of society. society. If society is going to become fully technical, if it's going to be fully a machine, then you have to get rid of the women. And where do we see this? We see it in Terminator, right? Why does the Terminator come back into the past to defend the machine universe? What does he do? He comes back to get rid of the mother. And it really is interesting that Sarah Connor in the, in the Terminator, in the first Terminator, is not Ripley. Uh, she's not this rippling uh, male-type hero, which she becomes later on. She's just a girl. She's just an ordinary girl. And the Terminator has to kill her because she's a girl. He has to kill her because she's a mom. It doesn't really make sense. Why don't they just hunt down her son, right? It'd be a lot easier, but they hunt down her because the feminine is the enemy of the machines. And the, it, it's amazing to me and symbolic that the ultimate expression of the takeover of machines, of the takeover of society by machines, is the Matrix. And the Matrix is made by transgender brothers, right? By two guys who ultimately, I think they both became women. I know one of them did, but I think they both became women. And so we see as we entered the technological age in the 60s, we see culture kind of predicting this horror of the feminine and this opposition between the feminine and 
male techno-materialism. And I think that progressivism has become basically the vehicle for male techno-materialism and the enemy of the feminine. And so it's interesting that the people who screamed and yelled about being feminists are the people who are stomping the nature of women into the dust. And the reason for that is that all bad ideas are the same idea. So your car is sitting in your driveway, it's not running, it's missing a part. Do you A, get in the car, pretend to drive to a car parts store, have a make-believe guy who isn't even there and doesn't know any more about car parts than you do because he's imaginary, supply you with a car part that's not real and then go back to your imaginary car and try and fix it? No, 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 you go onto rockauto.com. Why? Because it's real, you can fix your car and you get to say rockauto.com, which believe me, makes the ladies swoon. RockAuto.com always offers the lowest prices possible, and rather than change, they don't change prices based on who is the buyer. RockAuto.com is a family business. They've been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. Their catalog is unique. It's remarkably easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle, and they are actually real. You don't have to imagine them, and you can get them right off your computer. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin. You got to write it like that. You can't just write Clavin. You got to write Clavin. Clavin in there. How did you hear about us box? So they know we sent you. How do you spell Clavin U.S.? It's K. You got it the same way. Every letter. K-L-A-V-A-N. Because there are no E's in Clavin. There are no E's in Clavin. So here's one of the best ideas that Daily Wire had. Debunked starring Ben Shapiro. Who better to debunk stupid leftist ideas than Ben Shapiro? Every Friday, Ben exposes popular fallacies purported by leftist activists and politicians with short mini-documentaries that entertain and keep you informed on fact versus fiction when it comes to hot-button issues, which, let's face it, is everything. In the first episode released last Friday, Ben debunked minimum wage. You've heard the arguments hiking up the federal minimum wage is the only livable, humane way forward. What liberal activists and politicians won't acknowledge, however, is that the minimum wage was never designed to be livable, and it hurts more people than it helps. Debunked is now available to Daily Wire members exclusively. If you're not a member yet, go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use code debunked to get 25% off your new membership. And stay tuned for this Friday's episode where Ben will break down unions. That should be interesting. <laughs> Go sign up code debunked for 25% off. Well, I am really happy to have this guest on. This is a woman who has had a large effect on me. Her writing has had a large effect on me, probably on a lot of people. Ayan Hirsi Ali is the best-selling author of Infidel and Heretic the founder of the AHA Foundation, which supports liberty, and one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. Her latest book is Prey, P-R-E-Y, Prey, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights, and it is out now. Ayan, thank you for coming on. Um, Andrew, thank you very much for having me on. The opening of your book uh, talks about the colossal failure of the European political establishment. What is the colossal failure of the European political establishment? The colossal failure of the European establishment is the failure to integrate um, immigrant communities from Muslim majority countries and then to open up their borders for more 
immigrants from Muslim majority countries. So you, you specifically concentrate on the effect on women or on women's rights. And we've, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of statistics about the increases in rapes and things like that. But you have an image in this book pretty early on of, of women being unable in European capitals to go out to cafes, to be on the street alone, which is almost a kind of famous landmark of, of uh, Europe, uh, the freedom of, of women, uh, women sitting in cafes, women being able to move about freely. How, how wide, I haven't been in Europe for a couple of years now, how, how widespread is that where women actually can't go to a restaurant by themselves? You can go to neighborhoods where uh, Europe is just what you think of it as where everybody is absolutely free to go wherever they want, men and women, um, or homosexuals, heterosexuals, it doesn't matter. And then you go to other neighborhoods, mainly working class neighborhoods, where uh, the situation is completely different. Uh, there are, in fact, neighborhoods where you won't see women at all, not just in cafes, but you won't see them on the sidewalk, you won't see them in public transport, um, you just won't see women. And uh, these are some neighborhoods in places like Sweden, uh, France, um, Germany, uh, the UK, and um, it, it, I would say it's, it, it's these neighborhoods where women have decided, and it's not just immigrant women, but white native women have decided that it's safer for them to stay away from these places if they can. So, so that... That suggests to me that they don't feel that there's any one they can go to. There are no officials they can appeal to and say, look what's happened to our neighborhoods. Is that true? Is there no official response? The, uh, these women did actually appeal to the people who represent them. They appealed to members of the media. They appealed to all sorts of authorities, whatever they could do, they tried to draw attention to uh, the developments that are taking place in some of these neighborhoods, um, that they were bearing unfairly the burden of the unintended consequences of immigration, uh, but no one listened to them, or if people listened to them, not much happened. Uh, and so at some point, yeah, they, you know, they drew their own conclusions. And the women who could afford to move away did move away. But there's still a large number of women uh, who just can't. They, they don't have the means uh, to afford an apartment, a flat, a house um, in the so-called safer neighborhoods. There's even a question on how long those particular neighborhoods will remain safe. Mm. So, I mean... At the, at the highest levels, uh, never mind the, the police or the people that you can actually get on the phone and call, at the highest levels, is anybody addressing this? Uh, I, I mean, I, I heard uh, Macron in France is, is taking measures or at least uh, making speeches about against Islamic uh, separatism. Is, is that happening throughout Europe or is that just something Macron is doing to head off the right in his own country? Well, I think, first of all, things um, in some places have gotten so bad that there's just no looking away from it. And yes, mm. France uh, is one of those places. Uh, in the book, I zoom in only on women, but it isn't just about women. It's freedom of speech. Um, it's about 
the norms and the values and the customs of Europe as they understand it, and then having to face off with a minority population led by radical Islamists who are calling for, and Macron is absolutely right in this, calling for a separation from the wider society. So President Macron is taking this on, and uh, he is doing so because things are at a very bad place, number one. Number two, in the previous election, uh, Front National uh, was or came very close to winning the presidency. And in the elections next year that they're going to hold in France, again, Front National is, uh, you know, the runner up, uh, they might actually get the presidency. So, and if you listen to the average Frenchman, average Frenchwoman, this is what's on their minds. The unintended consequences of immigration from Muslim majority countries and these communities that are trying to separate themselves from the rest of society, the terrorist attacks, the impact on women, the impact on Jewish minorities, the impact on um, the LGBT community. And uh, I think what Macron is doing is absolutely right. But he's now not only facing off with Front National, but he's also facing off with members of the left who are saying that any kind of uh, you know, even discussing these issues, drawing up this bill, trying to stop this separatism from happening is a form of bigotry, a form of racism, a form of colonialism or neo-colonialism. So he does have to face off with the right and he has to face off with the left in order to carry this through. Um, the bill is now in the French Senate um, and we'll see. I think we'll have an answer next week as to whether it passes or not. You, you know, one of the, I've, I've been a, a follower of yours and an admirer of yours for many years. And I remember after reading, I, I think it was Infidel, uh, which I think was your first book. One of the things that I found amazingly frustrating, you had been in the Netherlands and check me if I get any of these facts right. I'm speaking from memory, but you'd been in the Netherlands. Your artistic collaborative partner had been murdered uh, by Islamists. Uh, you were under threat. And a lot of people were saying oh, if this Ayan Hirsi Ali would just stop making trouble, everything would be better, as if it was your fault that people were threatening your life. And finally, you had to leave uh, and come to the States. I, as I recall, that was the story. Is that, is that still the attitude throughout Europe, that if it's the fault of the victims, that somehow if we can ignore this and it will go away? Or has the tide turned a little bit? In some countries, the tide has turned. In countries like Denmark, in Austria... And again, as you can see in France, the tide is turning because um, there's just nowhere left to hide. Um, the problems are getting bigger. So it's the scale, the scope, the severity of the problem is becoming so dramatic that uh, they, right now, the particular heads of states of 2020, they don't have um, the same get out of jail card that leaders had in uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Now, you said, uh, I thought you said Theo van Gogh was autistic. He actually wasn't. He, he was uh, the opposite of autistic. Um, he oh, was artistic. A, yeah, artist. He was an yeah, artist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was an artist and uh, very much a member of the establishment on the left side. And um, he was uh, prescient in the sense that he saw these things coming up 
And people like him who sounded the alarm uh, were either unfortunately just like Theo, uh, killed or silenced in some other way, sometimes by the Islamists, sometimes by the leftists, sometimes by the establishment leadership, because no one seems to be ready to confront this problem, um, you know, until it gets out of hand. You know, let, let's talk about this Islam, the idea of Islamophobia, uh, which, which is kind of a strange idea. But since you're constantly accused of it, I think I think we should just uh, confront it. Violence toward women is epidemic. I mean, every society, women uh, face violence is kind of built into the human system, unfortunately. It, is Islam worse is, are Islamic people worse about this than other uh, cultures? It's different. If you okay. uh, want to say, so the, the assertion, the proposition that all cultures uh, have misogynist characteristics to them, that's true. Even beyond that, I'd say it's a truism. It's a truism to say, you know, in every culture, in every household, you know, you will find some sort of hostility towards women. Uh, but the way Western women are treated and the relationship between men and women in the West is radically different from the relationship between men and women in Muslim societies. And to conflate the two is either to be dumb and you know by saying that i'm actually trying to be as nice as i possibly can <laughs> or you have, you have a hidden agenda and when you use the term islamophobia uh, what it does is it obfuscates the hidden agenda that you have which is um, the term islamophobia was invented uh, by people who wanted to spread uh, radical Islam or the radical Islamic doctrine and anybody who gets in their way uh, is described as anti-Islamic, hostile to Islam. And at some point I think people started to tap into the moral relativism, the philosophy of multiculturalism and what we call woke today, uh, critical race theory. And it, it is in this realm, again, totally within Western society to start um, dividing society into various groups and then to claim that people who oppose that development are somehow phobic, um, racist or bigoted in some way. And I think the Islamists uh, saw this and seized that opportunity, came up with the phrase Islamophobia where Islam is conflated with race. Islam is not a race, it's a set of ideas, it's a religion. And uh, as we criticize Judaism, we criticize Christianity, we criticize Hinduism, Buddhism, so do we criticize Islam. There are some things I think that are appealing to people about Islam, but there are various things that are very unappealing about Islam. And for you to point that out, you will be accused of bigotry. And uh, I think the radical Islamists have seized onto this and have came, they came up with the word Islamophobia. And that's what they are trying to pin on people who say, you know, we stand for freedom of speech. We stand for equal rights between men and women. We stand for equal rights between uh, the LGBT community and everyone else. 
uh, were not anti-Semitic. We condemn all sorts of anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic um, expression. To say any of that is uh, to be found guilty of Islamophobia. I mean, the West used to be called Christendom. It is a what they now say a Judeo-Christian founded society. Is there something in Islam that is simply antithetical to the West? Um, the, the way it's depicted in the novels of Michelle Willebeck, is there something that just cannot blend with Western society? Or do you think there is hope that it, it can be assimilated into Western society? I think that Muslim societies and Western societies have a lot in common. Um, and they've had many encounters. Uh, but there are also some radical differences. And Western society has evolved and modernized, and Christians and Jews and other religious groups within Western society have either found um, a way forward with modernity and modernizing, or they've been forced to do that. And uh, in Islamic societies, uh, there is this dance with modernity where uh, a lot of Muslims actually want to be modern. They want to be free. Uh, Arab women in Saudi Arabia, they want to drive. Um, they want to have the opportunity to work. They want to be seen as equal before the law. They want to shed the uh, demand that they have male guardians. And this is all about modernity. Uh, but at the same time, they're being forced to say uh, that they accept and embrace Sharia law. And you find that some of these things can't be reconciled. If you want to be free and equal as a woman to man, but you want to abide by Sharia law, you can't have both of those things. Uh, it's one or the other. And this is not something, it's not a choice that only women have to make. It's a choice that everyone has to make. And as we see large you know, people by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions coming to Europe or Western societies from Muslim societies, we are seeing this encounter of conflict and confrontation. There are values that simply cannot be reconciled. If Islam demands that someone who leaves the religion or who blasphemes against the religion be beheaded. And in Western society, we think that's brutal and cruel and barbaric and backward. And we have laws that say, no, you can't do that. These are two points of value that you just simply can't reconcile. You have to make a choice. Western leaders have been trying to hide from that, at least since 9-11. That's when I joined, started to participate in this discussion. Uh, Western leaders have been trying to hide from that by declaring that Islam is a religion of peace. Um, and along came people like MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and you know, he, he thinks that a journalist uh, is writing things about him, saying things about him that defy his sense of honor and defy his sense of authority. And he handles that in exactly the same way he would handle as if he were in Saudi Arabia. That causes a diplomatic rift. It causes all sorts of problems. And even to this date, and even on that particular point, I still see uh, members of the Western leadership who are saying, yes, but there is no yes, but. In the West, we don't chop up journalists who disagree with you. In Saudi Arabia, uh, it, you know, I saw that uh, message that said, we stand with MBS. 
that uh, hmm. people inside Saudi Arabia who are fans, uh, subjects who like him, who are saying we stand with him, of course they do. That's how they solve problems in Saudi Arabia. So what are you going to do? Are you going to pretend that you know, we are all the same or are you going to get your head out of the sand and say this is not how we do things uh, and beyond that we're actually going to fight for the way we do things? I, I only have a, a minute left. I, I just want to ask you, are, are you hopeful? Are you, do you think that there is a way to assimilate this massive influx of people? Or is there going to have to be some kind of uh, reckoning that's uh, some more unpleasant reckoning than that? I think both. I'm optimistic in the sense that the values, Western, the values of Western civilization are more appealing, more attractive humanity in general, whether they are in Islamic societies or whether they're in China or whether they're in India or whether they're in Latin America, um, the declaration of human rights and the principles that are set out there, that's just simply more appealing. And so that makes me optimistic. Uh, but are we going to have more confrontations? Yes, we are, because the people in power uh, and who see as their source of power, whether it's religious or not, are going to cling to that and they're going to fight for it. And I think, um, in the next few decades, we're going to see how that confrontation uh, plays itself out in places like Europe. You know, Europeans have declared over and over again that uh, they are going to stand for the rights and freedoms of women. They are women because they ignored what was happening to immigrant women, but now they're on women. And let's see if actually that is true and valid. The name of the book is Prey, P-R-E-Y, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. It's been coming under attack. The New York Times wrote a tremendously unfair uh, and dishonest article about it. Uh, but I, I'm, I've just started reading it. It's really interesting. Ayan Hirsi Ali is a brave lady, the author of Infidel and Heretic, and the founder of the AHA Foundation in Support of Liberty. Ayan, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I hope you will come back. Andrew, thank you very much for having me. And thank you for doing all of this. Wonderful. All right. If you've stayed with us this long, there can only be two reasons. One, my personal beauty. And two, because you were waiting for, and here it is, the mailbag. One year ago, I was waitressing in a taco shop in downtown Manhattan. Yeah! <laughs> that was great. <laughs> From Matt, uh, you have pointed out that losing a job to cancel culture is a much smaller sacrifice than what our forebears endured to defend our freedom. I understand your point on a moral level, but on a practical level, is it a good strategy to ask people to take on cancel culture at their own expense? It's a tragedy of the commons problem. Getting canceled is a huge blow to an individual, while fighting back yields only a dispersed collective benefit. I wonder if we need a more coordinated response, but I suppose asking conservatives to collectively bargain against cancel culture is also an impractical non-starter. I don't really have the answer and would love to hear your thoughts. Well, yes, I'm, I want to be very clear about this. I've said this before, and the reason I wanted to answer this is because I want to make sure it's very clear. I am not telling you uh, to lose your job. I'm telling you that this is the war you have been chosen to fight. That's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that this is the fight that we're in. So if I said to you, oh, we're at war with France, you wouldn't go and stick your head in a French cannon and say, blow my head off. That'll teach you. No, you don't, you don't die. What was it? Patton said, you don't win a war uh, by dying for your country. You make it 
you win it by making the other guy die for his country. And in this case, too, we want to make sure that we fight smart. But this is the battle, and it is going to entail risks. And one of those risks is losing what you have. And the bravest will risk the most, and the and the most uh, the people who can endure the most loss will risk the most. And and that's the way it'll go. And other people who are in smaller positions will risk less. And you're you're very correct that we should act together even though we're conservatives because this is why this is my point about not uh, judging whether Dr. Seuss should be canceled or Mallard film nothing should be canceled no one should be canceled and even if you make a, a you know a racial slur right you should have your a finger wagged at you but it could happen to anybody we all have untoward thoughts and all say untoward things from time to time we should be uh, supporting forgiveness culture. We should be supporting compassion culture. You know, we should not be supporting this racial panic at a time when people are freer than they've ever been. It is all about the leftism. We should not give them any quarter. So that's the fight. The fight is not, oh, he said a racial slur. Well, that was bad. So maybe he should be fired, but not this guy. No, no canceling, nothing. You have the right to your opinions and you have the right to your flaws. You have the right to be, uh, to make mistakes. Somebody was shouting uh, on Twitter, oh, these conservatives are arguing for the right to be racist. Well, guess what? Being racist is a schmucky thing to be. And as I say, I think it's an offense to God. But you do have the right to be racist. It is something you have the right to be. You have the right to be a bad guy. That's not, you know, that's not something that people can take away from you. You can't make that illegal because who decides? So, when, what I was saying mere, was merely this. This is the fight that we're in. There's no, I'm going to hide, I'm going to duck, I'm going to get around, I'm going to go under the radar, none of that. And we have to understand that this is it. We have to say what has to be said. But yeah, we should take collective action. When they want you to go to HR and train about your whiteness, you know, you should make sure if you were going to fight against that, you should make sure that there are a lot of people who fight against that, who a lot of people who come in and say, we won't do it. Maybe you should ma- have a lawyer before you go in and fight about it. You know, you should take care of the things you have. You don't want to, I don't want you to lose anything that you have, but you might have to risk some of the things you have, and that might entail loss in the long run. And my point was only that this is the fight for America we are in. What they are doing, although, like I said, this is a moment like the witch hunts, like the McCarthy era, the woke era, is one of these moral panics that America tends to fall in from time to time. But it has to be stopped. It has to be fought against. And who, when we look back at the McCarthy era, and when we look back at the witch hunts, who do we admire? We admire the people who stood up and said no. That's, that's who we admire. And so if you want to be part of that, yeah, do it in the, the smartest way you can, do it in the safest way you can, but don't think you can let it go and it's just going to be over and somebody else is going to deal with the problem uh, because that might not happen for one thing. And, and secondly, you know, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be in your life? What do you want when people say, what did you do to stop cancel culture? What did you do to stop McCarthyism? What did you do to stop uh, the witch hunts? It's going to be the same question about wokeism. Wokeism is the same thing. It is a moral panic. It is a witch hunt. Uh, it is destructive of American values. And to let it uh, just go by and not understand that that's the fight you're in is to misunderstand your own history. Um, but no, don't be stupid. Don't you know risk things that you can't afford to lose. Uh, don't act on your own. I mean, that's that, those are all dumb things to do. But join together and fight. Um, from anonymous. My relationship with God is a complicated one. I'm going to have to edit this. This is long. Uh, I think it's a woman. I'm not sure, but says she's been through a childhood abuse, sexual assault, a hate crime committed to me. I struggle with depression, anxiety, and PTSD. I've been to lots, countless counselors and therapists. Um, I'm thinking about 
turning to the bottle, to alcohol, because I'm desperate for help. I've never been medicated, and I don't want to do that. Um, my question to you is from one Christian to another. If we are God's loving children, why does he make me or us go through these traumatic events? Um, I don't feel God's unconditional love. These events are reasons why I turn further and further away from God. Okay, I think you can get the sense of that, uh, of that letter. Well, first of all, let me not do this to you. Let me not uh, give you some simplistic answer about God's motivations in allowing evil. I mean, I think I've always thought it has something to do with freedom, that you can't have people who are free um, without the, allowing them to commit evil, that you can't have a clockwork world and still have people who can freely choose to love God, and God is, has made you to freely choose to love him, but you can't do that unless you can freely choose to not love him. And when you freely choose to not love him, you commit evil deeds. It's not God who has done these things for you. He didn't pick you for this. He didn't put you in this life to say, oh, here is this person and these terrible things are going to happen. He left people free to do these things to you. And, and the depths of his reason for doing that, no one can possibly understand. We can only know that because he's God, it is a good that we will one day understand. But that is not much help to you when you're in the kind of pain you're in. And I have... Uh, you know, as a child, I think I can say that I suffered a, a kind of abuse, but it was nothing like what you are suffering. I can only understand it by uh, extrapolating from my own experience, and I know that it leaves scars. I know that God doesn't take those scars away. They are part of you, and they're part of your life. I know that he will give you joy in spite of those wounds. I know he will, because I know this from my own life, he will give you uh, more sanity than you could ever have hoped to have. He can do all kinds of things uh, that are amazing. But it's not its not him who, even though I can't give you a complete and full answer for why he allows these things to happen, except for, for uh, allowing freedom and holding freedom as a high value, um, I, I, can't, I can't say why they happen to you. you know? No one can say why they happen to you. Bad luck. It really is. It's just something uh, terrible that happened to you. And but what I can tell you is this, and this is something I know from my experience, that that God will use those things, and even He will use even your pain to lead Him to you if you choose to go in that direction. So what should you do? Because the thing is, there are all kinds of levels of spiritual development, and one of them is mental health. And before I could find God, I had to solve my mental health problem. I had a, a genuinely bad mental health problem when I was a kid. Uh, it was really ugly, and I had to solve that. It was like a, a wall. Now, God was there through all that. When I go back and look at my life, I'm so moved and uh, amazed by the fact that God was there, even though I, couldn't, I was too uh, ill to see him. Uh, he was there and led me to the place where I could solve that problem, but I had to solve that problem before I could fully and consciously uh, know God. Now. There are lots of different kinds of therapy. And obviously, when you've been through what you've been through, because people did this to you, people have to help you. And there are lots of different kinds of therapy, and it's possible you haven't found uh, the right therapy yet or uh, a good therapy. There are lots of therapy specifically trained on trauma. And consider this in terms of logic, okay? You're talking about alcoholism. You're talking about, I'm thinking of hitting the bottle, but you don't want to use medication. That doesn't make a lot of sense, okay? I mean, seriously, if you're reaching the point where you're ready to drink yourself into oblivion, trying a psychotropic drug is a healthier alternative. There may be other ways of doing it. You may want to try a few more alternatives uh, that are specifically geared to the treatment of trauma before you use psychotropic drugs. But drugs should medicate you know, psychiatrically prescribed medication should come before alcoholism, all right? I mean, that just makes sense, right? I mean, you remind me of somebody who once called me on a hotline and said, I'm going to 
cut my throat. And after talking to some to this person for a while, I finally said, you know, have you ever considered therapy? And he said, isn't wouldn't that be painful? And I said, well, it wouldn't be as painful as cutting your throat, you know? So taking prescri- psychiatric prescribed psychotropic drugs is going to be better for you than alcoholism. Meanwhile, what I would say to you about God is, look, I can't tell you not to be angry at God, and I can't tell you not to turn away from God. Um, but I can tell you that if you don't do that, I can tell you that if you hook your wagon to God's star, if you let go of yourself and give yourself to him, he will get you where you need to go. He will take you where you need to go. And you're still going to be in pain. There's still going to be pain in your life. There's still pain in my life. There's pain in everybody's life. The things that happened to you that formed you are still going to be there and the scars are still going to be there. But, but you will be shocked. I mean, shocked. I am shocked. I I have been in the last two weeks, I have been bowled over by the places I have reached in my heart from where I started because I'm not supposed to be here. I am not supposed to be this guy, except that God said it would be so. And uh, and I believe that can happen to you. You know, I, I, I do. I really have faith in that. Use your wits. Use your wits. Don't use your anger. Don't use your pain. Use your wits. Don't turn to alcohol before you turn to psychotropic drugs. And before you turn to psychotropic drugs, really do some research and find out, is there something geared to specifically your problem? Your problem is trauma. You have been traumatized. You have been abused and traumatized. Your problem is trauma. There are many treatments that are geared specifically toward trauma. I'm not an expert, and I'm, so I'm not going to start reeling things off. But, but do some research and find out. Help yourself. Help yourself to open the way to God because he's still there. He's waiting. You know, it's worth it. Uh, from Daniel, here's a writing question. Those are easier. <laughs> there. Uh, yeah. Since most bad storytelling in movies and TV is blamed on the writers, both when it's bad because of in-your-face wokeness and just bad per se, it would be interesting to hear their perspective on it. I'm assuming they don't become writers on popular shows because they're guilty of lazy storytelling. Have you talked to any of these writers who are criticized because their work turned bad, lazy, or woke? Uh, you know, it, it really depends what you're working in and what your working situation is. In movies, writers have no power. They have zero power. Movies are a director's medium, okay? And I have written good stuff that has been made bad by directors. I have I wrote one thing that the director wanted to make bad, and I managed to stop him uh, by walking off, you know? I mean, I've, you have to fight for it, but still, even so, it wasn't as good as it would have been with another director. Uh, the writer ultimately... Um, really has no power. And only people like me, and this is very, very rare, I was always willing to quit before writing something bad. And that's the only power you have is to quit because you have no other power. And no writers do that. I'm the only writer who does that. And that's because I never really cared much about the movie business. And because I'm the way I, I you see me. Uh, but but only people who are willing to do that have any kind of leverage at all. So writers are not to blame for movies because directors just have too much power. In TV, it's different, but there's really only one writer who has the power. It's the head writer, the creator writer, the guy who's running the show and running the writer's room. He has the power uh, in TV. And so, um, but he is also under the gun by all these sponsors and executives who are coming in and say, no, we don't want that. We want this and we'll cancel you if you don't do that. So he doesn't have complete power, but he has more power than has more power than the director who's just a hireling, hireling in TV. The director just comes in for the show. Then you send him on his way, bring in another director. He doesn't matter. It's the writer who creates the show. The writer is king. So 
when you're looking for people to blame, you know, it's like sometimes it's the writer who didn't do the job. Sometimes it's the writer who got mauled by the studio execs and had to do it to keep his show on the air and keep his paycheck coming. Uh, oftentimes it's the director, uh, you know, and, and sometimes writers just don't have a lot of talent and they're just bad. So there's all kinds of uh, different ways that a story can go bad. But the most important thing is anything you are watching, anything you're not reading is a collaboration. And there are a lot of places where things can go wrong. I, I did a movie, I always joke about this movie, One Miss Call, because it has a 0% Rotten Tomatoes rating. But it's not like anybody did anything wrong. It's that everybody did something different. I wrote one kind of script. The director wanted to make a different kind of movie. The producers and the executives wanted a third kind of movie, and it just didn't fit together. But nobody did anything wrong. It was kind of a sad uh, situation because everybody wanted it to be good, uh, but it didn't turn out as well as it should have. All right, I'm going to stop there. It has been great, as always, talking to you. If you're an All Access member, and you should be, I will be back uh, during the week to do an All Access show and back again next Friday for another event, incident. Oh, it's a crisis. It's The Andrew Clavin Show. I am Andrew Clavin. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. The D.C. insurrection we were warned about never happened. eBay bans the newly offensive Dr. Seuss books. The Washington football team decides to get rid of its cheerleaders. And BLM is revealed to be one big grift. What a shock. All of that and much more today on The Matt Walsh Show.